Derek, you've thrown touchdown passes in Vegas before. You've been on fire. Have you ever been that hot in Las Vegas? Not that hot. It's uh, probably why I'm going somewhere else. Oh, no. Derek Carr went there. I'm surprised he went there or stayed there. He's still living in Las Vegas, but he got the invitation to the Pro Bowl games, all three of the original AFC quarterbacks out for a variety of reasons. Derek Carr in. And, hey, to his credit, it's an opportunity to kind of show up and remind everyone I'm still here throwing the ball around last night, kind of an unofficial pro day workout for teams that may be interested Peter, this continues to be just a weird, bizarre story because, number one, the Raiders didn't have to give Derek Carr a new contract last year. Number two, the way they structured the contract, they included that escape hatch that was obvious to me when I first started breaking down the numbers. I mean, it's not hiding in in some nook or cranny of the deal. It was right there. They have an out if they want to use it, and they're going to use it, apparently. They're going to move on or work out a trade before February 15, when he has $40.4 million come due in salary between this year and part of next year. And and we wait. The clock is ticking loudly, Peter, toward February 15. Mike, explain this to me. I have not studied this contract the way you have, but I guess here is my question. Do you actually think there is some team in the NFL that would do two things? Number one, trade a middle, let's say a third round draft pick to the Raiders for Derek Carr and then also pay him $40 million, you know, when he, as soon as the deal is agreed to or or commit to paying him $40 million. Why would a team do that? You know, team X out there, pick a team, the Jets, Washington, whoever, you know, they they didn't agree to the terms of this contract. Why should they have to live by it? And that to me is the reason. Look, I'm not I'm not positive that Derek Carr is going to be great. And you know, you would think, you would think that to commit 40 million dollars plus some draft capital uh you know on day 1 to a quarterback, you would say if we don't think there's a very good chance this guy could lead us to deep into the playoffs. Why are we doing this? And that's a great point. We don't know who would make that commitment, but it is a dual commitment that necessarily reflects, and and I've been explaining it this way. If a team is willing to guarantee $40.4 million to Derek Carr, and it's a base salary of 32 this year, and it's the remainder a fully guaranteed salary in 2024. But if you're willing to do that and give the Raiders what they're looking for, the reality is if Derek Carr was on the open market, that team would do more. If that team is willing to take on that contract and give the Raiders draft pick compensation mid-round or higher, then if Derek Carr was just a free agent, he could probably do a better deal. This isn't one of those situations, and I've seen this over the years, where a player has a contract that is so favorable to the team that another team trades for the contract. They want to get the guy before he becomes a free agent. The contract is too good. You don't want to see that contract get ripped up and the player become a free agent. And that's just not the case here. And that's why I've thought all along that when push comes to shove on this, Peter, they're not going to be able to trade Derek Carr. And, and that sets aside the reality that all they could do is reach an unofficial deal to trade Derek Carr in the middle of March a deal on which the other side could back away at any time without consequence. Another team could do to Josh McDaniels what Josh McDaniels did to the Colts five years ago with no consequence, perfectly within the rules. Sorry, Mark Davis. I woke up this morning and I decided, you know, I was listening to Peter King on PFT Live back on February 3rd, and he made a pretty good point. Why the hell would I want to guarantee $40.4 million sight unseen for Derek Carr? I'm out. Sorry, I know we had an unofficial agreement, but you know it's not official until the first day of the league year, so I'm out. So that timeline has always been screwy, and I continue to believe that it's pointing toward the Raiders ripping up the contract on 
Valentine's Day and Derek Carr becoming a free agent with a five-week head start on the open market. I think so too, Mike. That makes the most sense to me. And look, I'll tell you one other thing that, that occurred to me when I was thinking about a team guaranteeing him absolute minimum $40.4 million this year. And then beyond that, obviously, you're not just going to make this a one-year deal, I wouldn't think. So this is the other thing I thought of. What was the storyline last July and August going into the NFL season? Oh, my gosh. Derek Carr is in Nirvana for quarterbacks. He is in he is with Josh McDaniels and this is an unbelievable spot for him. Not only is he with Josh McDaniels, but they went out and did exactly what he wanted to, what he wanted them to do. They he went out, they went out rather and got him Devonte Adams. And so you tell me Mike right now. This is this is almost uh, an unfair question, but you tell me right now, okay? Like, whoever's fault this was, okay? Whoever's fault this was, the fact is that in Derek Carr's last five games for the Raiders, he threw two, one, two, one, and three interceptions. They had that ugly loss. You know, on the Franco Harris day, you know, on uh, on Christmas Eve night in Pittsburgh. And then, all of a sudden, three days later, what happens? Derek Carr disappears. I mean, I, I just, I think this whole thing, if I'm a team, am I saying to myself, I want to be really, really aggressive <coughs> on a guy who's going to be 32 years old next opening day who just was in an ideal place. You would think any quarterback in the world would want to be with Josh McDaniels throwing to Devontae Adams, Hunter Renfro. It it was perfect. It was perfect. And he basically makes an agreement to stay away for the last... Things are so bad that he stays away for the last two weeks of the season. And in the first game, some guy who nobody ever heard of plays a better game against the 49ers than Derek Carr played all year. I'm sorry, Mike. There's something wrong with this picture. And that's why I I think any t- I, I, his best avenue is to be a free agent. And if I were him and I were his agent, I'm not sure I would expect a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Well, and, you know, the bottom line is Derek Carr has a lot more control over this process than I think we've realized. And as time goes by and more starts to come out, the signs are there that Derek Carr is ready to draw the line in the sand and say, I refuse to waive my no trade clause. I refuse to change anything about my contract. You have to decide. If you keep me around as of February 15, I'm fully guaranteed $40.4 million. You want to squat on me? You want to pull a Marcus Allen on me and say, okay, fine, just sit home or stay on the sidelines and we'll pay you to not play? That's $40.4 million, and Mark Davis is not one of the cash-rich owners in the NFL who can just bat an eye at $40.4 million. So I think when push comes to shove, They're going to move on from him, but they're still going to try to trade him. There's a stubbornness here. Sims and I were talking about this yesterday. He and he's right. Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler, coach and GM, respectively of the Raiders, are not dumb. They're not dumb, but they're stubborn and stubborn can make you do dumb things. Here's Ziegler from yesterday talking about the interest that he claims is out there in a trade for Derek Carr. Derek's a phenomenal player, too, and he's a phenomenal human being. And, you know, we're going to you know, obviously we have some things, some dominoes to fall and, and, you know, some things that we have to look at relative to his situation and our quarterback situation going forward in 23. But um, there's not, no, 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 no position is as important as the quarterback position. You, you all know that. Everybody knows that. And so, uh, you know, we're going to be putting a lot of work, um, you know, put a lot of work in on that front. And, 
and kind of seeing how it all plays out here. Well, I yeah, I don't need a specific answer, but have you gotten interest? If I was in this league and I saw what happened to Derek, I'd be calling you going, uh, Dave, you want to talk a little bit here? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, and I think um, here this week at the Senior Bowl, obviously everybody's here, and so, uh, you know, this this is a good time to have those conversations. But you know, there's going to be people interested in Derek Carr. There's, there's no there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, he's, he's you know, been a good football player in this league for, for quite some time, and like I said, he's a phenomenal human being, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of just see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's going toward February 15, which will be here before we know it. It's not, and this is an example of having a good agent. The deadline that was put into the new contract that Derek Carr signed last year wasn't March 15, March 20, March 30, when the Raiders had to make their decision. It was a month before free agency. So if they do make the decision, and they're forced to make the decision to move on from the $40.4 million, then there's a full month before any of the free agents are available to be signed, where Derek Carr is the only one out there. He's got a month where he can go visit teams and talk to teams. He doesn't have to wait. There is no tampering at issue. They could take him to the scouting combine and walk him around to meet with the teams. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do when you hit the market a month early. That gives him an advantage. And, you know, Peter, this all kind of started to hit full boil earlier this week when it was reported and has since been confirmed by Carr himself that the Raiders haven't given Carr and his agent permission to try to work their trade. Well, if you're going to try to control this process, which is what the Raiders are doing, how do you expect Derek Carr to cooperate with you? You're hinging all of this. Hey, Derek, just take a seat. We'll find, we'll find a trade for you. Just you hang back there and wait. We'll find you a good trade. They still have to convince him to waive his no trade clause or maybe take less money or maybe change the date of when that money becomes due. He said last night he's not changing that date. And I think embedded in that answer, he's also not waiving his no trade clause and they're just wasting their time because when push comes to shove again, his attitude is going to be you got to pay me or you got to cut me. And that's probably what I would do if I were him too. I, I just, you know, Mike, I think this probably has something to do with the fact that um, on the, I think it was the second or third day of Raiders training camp in July, I was in Las Vegas and I sat in on uh, McDaniels and, uh, and Carr had a meeting every day, like 20 minutes in which they went over all of sort of the new things that they wanted to correct, you know, that they were doing, that they thought that they had some questions on, and it was just sort of a clarification meeting. And I walked out of there, and I just thought, man, these guys are really good for each other. Carr is already speaking the McDaniels language. Uh, there's clear understanding on both sides. It's great. Now, you're going to have to make a decision. And I'm sure that a team that's looking into it, if you're Joe Douglas of the New York Jets, you're Martin Mayhew of the Washington Commanders, you're Scott Fitterer of the Carolina Panthers, I think less of a chance he would be. But you're, you're anybody, you're, you're Mickey Loomis, okay? And you're looking around. So here's my question. What the hell went wrong? In the 20 games before Josh McDaniels walked into walked onto campus, 20 games, Derek Carr threw for 320 yards or more eight times. Last season, Derek Carr never threw for 320 yards in a game. And he had Devontae Adams. So I I am I am really stuck on this one, Mike. And they've done a very good job of tamping down <clears throat> any discussion of where this all went south. But it went south. And it went south in a huge way. And the Raiders were out of the playoffs late and all that stuff. And, and it was a bad season. And, you know, whoever looks into Derek Carr is going to have to feel very good about what happened at the end of this season. Because right now, it is the great unknown.
When John Gruden became coach of the Raiders again five years ago, someone that I trust very much said, this isn't going to end well with him and Derek Carr because Derek Carr is going to crumble under this relentless tirade of F-bombs from John Gruden as he demands Derek Carr to suddenly morph into Joe Montana. Gruden backed off. Gruden understood he had to modify his approach or he was going to lose his quarterback. I wonder, Peter, whether or not Josh McDaniels made no concessions, no adjustments, no limitations on the Patriot way, the way that you coach quarterbacks. They coach them hard in the Patriot way. Tom Brady got coached very hard. So that may have been – so five years after, four years after, we thought Gruden was going to break Derek Carr. It very well may be that the Patriot way is what – is what got, you know, I mean, Josh McDaniels has Tom Brady to compare every other quarterback he ever has on his roster to. And there was something in the makeup of Derek Carr that caused him to conclude this guy is not the one who's going to take us to the top of the mountain, period. So we move on. The other thing that I I wouldn't like right now about the way this matchup was, you know, of these two guys Think of it, Mike. Here's his last three years pre-McDaniels. Completion percentage. 70.4, 67.3, 68.4. This year, 60.8. <clears throat> and so I, the one thing that if I were a team, the easiest thing in the world to do right now is for teams looking into Derek Carr to say, Oh, you know, McDaniels expected him to be Tom Brady. He was unreasonable, the expectations, put too much on his plate, la-di-da-di-da-di-da. Which, Mike, I'm not saying that didn't happen because I don't know what happened. But what would happen if you had, let's say a coach like Sean Payton. Like, one of the reasons Russell Wilson wanted Sean Payton to be the coach of the Denver Broncos. He knew that his career was teetering on the edge of a cliff. And he knows that he needs to be coached hard and he needs to basically become a ball of clay and say, okay, coach, do with me what you want to do. I think that is Sean Payton's impression going into the job. We'll see if it comes out that way. But my only point is this. There are some coaches who are going to coach you really hard and who are going to be demanding that every week you be willing to learn new stuff and all that. But with that, with those great expectations, also come great expectations for performance. And again, I don't know whose fault it was. And I doubt it was altogether one person's fault. But if I were looking into this, I would not just simply say, oh, McDaniels, he expected him to be Brady. Nobody's going to be Brady. Give us, give us Derek Carr. And you may still come away saying, give us Derek Carr. But I can't believe in, this, in all of this that he's faultless. Oh, oh and I'm not saying that, that this is a situation where McDaniels simply soured on Derek Carr because he's not Tom Brady. I'm talking about the way Brady handled hard coaching and the way Carr handled it. And I just suspect that Carr didn't react. Don't know it, but I'm just trying to discern from the circumstantial evidence where this went sideways. I would suspect that Carr maybe didn't react and respond to aggressive coaching the way that Josh McDaniels hopes and you know you've got some guys in the league you got quarterbacks in the league that don't want to be told how to do their job I know how to do my job and then if you freelance a little bit you don't want to be called out by your coach you don't want him in your face yelling at you and you definitely don't want to be in the film room having the coach show some of your lowlights from the week that was and embarrassing you in front of everyone for the dumb decisions that you made or the things you should have done that you didn't do and that may be part of it and that that leads us to the next quarterback on our list for today because one possibility for Aaron Rodgers continues to be the Raiders and as Chris Sims said yesterday Aaron Rodgers 
Josh McDaniels, get your popcorn ready if those two personalities cross paths because (laughs) there's going to be some things about Josh McDaniels that Aaron Rodgers will not like. And there's been a lot of tiptoeing on eggshells around Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay the past few years. Peter, you know that a guy who sprouted from the Belichick tree isn't tiptoeing on anything around anyone. Well... I don't know what's going to happen, Aaron Rodgers. None of us do. But I just know this, Mike. And the reason why, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, whatever in my column, that I quoted Schefter saying whatever the exact words were, the significant likelihood uh, that he could be traded or whatever the words were. But they basically introduced as a real possibility the chance that he could be traded. And I hadn't really been thinking of that beforehand. Maybe not rightfully so, but but whatever. When you start to think about it, the first thing I think of after covering the league for a long time is that a story like that does not get out if Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur are holding, drawing a line in the sand and say, Aaron Rodgers will be traded over our dead bodies. There is no chance that Aaron Rodgers is going to be traded. It's obvious that that's not how they feel. And Mike, I think we need to have a little history lesson this morning on February 3rd in the, starting off the second hour of our show. And that history lesson is it is absolutely un believable how history is repeating itself in Green Bay. If Aaron Rodgers goes to a new team or retires, just just understand that 15 years ago this month, Ted Thompson and fairly young coach in Green Bay, Mike McCarthy, agreed we want a decision from Brett Favre early this offseason about whether he's going to be coming back. And if he is coming back, we want him involved in our offseason program more than he has been in the past. What's going on right now? Tell me, what is going on right now? If Aaron Rodgers called Matt LaFleur right now or met with him you know, before he went on his ayahuasca or however the hell you pronounce that stuff <laughs> down in Peru... <laughs> If, if if he met with him and, you know, I think Matt LaFleur would say, listen, we need you to be more involved. We just do. We saw what happened this year. Young receivers took a while to get on the same page, blah, 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 and all that. We need you to be more involved. What's Aaron Rodgers going to say? I don't know. He might say, okay, I'll come to the second mini. I, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know what he would say. But the fact is, he hasn't been doing that in recent years. Favre didn't do that in his last few years. My point is very simple. That 15 years ago, this month, started the wheels on the pavement that kept going around and around faster and faster that resulted on March 8th, five weeks from now, 15 years ago, for Brett Favre to announce his retirement. And then, you know, he realizes about six weeks later, oh my God, I made a terrible mistake. I want to play. So I don't know what'll happen. And I'm not saying that Brett Favre or that Aaron Rodgers is Brett Favre at all. Yeah, they're absolutely different people. However, it certainly is, as Yogi Berra once said, deja vu all over again. And I think back to what happened in February of 2008, and my theory has always been the Packers were done with Brett Favre. They were done with the annual will I or won't I soliloquy from Brett Favre. Am I coming back? Am I not coming back? They had a first-round quarterback that they had drafted in the 20s who had sat on the bench for three seasons, and they were ready to see what Aaron Rodgers could do. 
So I believe they specifically went to Favre and posed that question in February. We need to know right now if you're playing this year because they knew in February Favre's attitude was, I don't want to play. And they feared that as February became March, became April, became May, became June, became July, he would change his mind and want to play after the offseason program, after that that change in the grass where the smell in the air, you know it's football season. Then he's ready to go. They wanted him to commit, and they wanted to barricade the door with furniture, and I think they drafted seven quarterbacks that year on top of having Aaron Rodgers to keep Brett Favre out. He still came back, and they had to deal with him, and that's when they traded him to the Jets. I think what the Packers are doing now is, and you have to play Aaron Rodgers differently. Aaron Rodgers isn't going to fall for what Brett Favre fell for. So you kind of have to let Aaron Rodgers come to the conclusion on his own that it's time for me to move on to another team. And the danger in trying to engineer this toward Rodgers choosing to leave, he has all the power here. You know, we've talked about how much power Derek Carr has given his contract with the Raiders. Aaron Rodgers has all the power because if he just says to the Packers, you know what? I want to play for you again. He gets $60 million fully guaranteed this year, and they can do some cap things to deal with it, but it's still $60 million coming out of the coffers of Green Bay Packers Incorporated that is going to Aaron Rodgers this year if they don't trade him. So they set up that contract last year to create a, a minimum two-year commitment to Aaron Rodgers, and now he's the one that has to make the commitment to the team. And I think that's part of this. They don't want him to think they don't want him there. Because that could cause him to say, fine, I'm just staying. You have to deal with me for one more year, and you got to pay me $60 million. So I think there's levels of psychology going on with Aaron Rodgers that weren't applicable to Brett Favre for a variety of reasons. And and I think that's this this maze that the Packers are currently trying to find their way through with Aaron Rodgers. I think one of the interesting things you point out, Mike, is – you know, just the simple fact that when you think about it, okay, so in Aaron Rodgers' fourth year, 2008, they were still very much thinking that they weren't positive about him. And what's so interesting about that is Jordan Love enters his fourth year. Uh, as an NFL player in 2023. And the Packers don't know about him either. And not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, football sometimes is a mystery wrapped in a riddle. It just is. But the coincidence of this is so remarkable. But I do get the impression that even though what they got for Favre was relatively nothing uh, compared to what he ended up being worth in his two years in Minnesota. Um, or I'm sorry, in his one year with the Jets and then two years in Minnesota, which obviously they got nothing for. But I just think this is a great example of history repeating itself. Oh, and it will be fun to watch it all play out. And the first step is Rodgers deciding, does he want to play at all? That's step one. And then step two is, does he want to play for the Packers? And step three is, if not for the Packers, who's he going to play for? Now, before he goes off on his ayahuasca bender, as you mentioned earlier, he's participating in the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. A little sound yesterday when he was asked if there's any news he wants to share regarding his potential destination. He has allowed us, Peter King, to take one team off the board. Let's have a listen to Aaron Rodgers from Thursday. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Cole. Got any news you want to share with us? Not going to San Fran. (laughs) There it is. Not going to San Fran. And that's significant because, Peter, if you remember... The day of the draft, 2021. And the guy who pulled the pin on the grenade was my good friend Paul Allen. He started talking about how the 49ers the night before had made a run at trading for Aaron Rodgers. They had moved up to the number three overall pick, 
And they had decided, in lieu of using that pick, they were going to call the Packers and try to get Aaron Rodgers. And there was a belief that the Packers had told Rodgers, if you want to be traded, we'll trade you, and that they backed out on that. But it was the 49ers, interest from the 49ers, that started that whole mess back in 2021. Well, this time around, forget about the 49ers. They, they have enough issues of their own, and it will not be finally rectifying their failure to draft Aaron Rodgers with the first overall pick in 2005 when future Packers coach Mike McCarthy was the offensive coordinator in San Francisco. And yes, 18 years later, Aaron Rodgers still holds a grudge about that. I mean, okay. I, 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 I'll just say this. If Aaron Rodgers had the chance to go to San Francisco and didn't go and instead opted for I don't even know. The Jets, Washington, whatever. Just is that a little bit, I don't know, spiteful? What What's the right word for that? Not smart? Petty. I mean, petty. You tell me. Yeah, petty. Petty. You tell me what team, and first of all, other than Jed York, who in 2005 was as far from the seat of power uh, in the 49ers, with the 49ers organization, as is humanly possible, okay? But there's nobody there in San Francisco now who was there in 2005. I mean, like, where's Mike Nolan? Where's, I mean, Mike McCarthy, we can talk about that all day. The fact is, are you telling me right now that you would pass on a chance for the next two years to play with Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel, and you'd pass on uh, the chance uh, to play with George Kittle. You'd pass on the chance to play with the best defense in football in 2022. That you know that they're going to hand you the keys to that Ferrari for the next two years, let's say, uh, if you committed to it. And you wouldn't do it, I I am without speech. They they're, they're telling me to break, and it's funny because sometimes what Courtney says is break next, break whenever you want, break. When she starts saying break, then I know I have to break. But I'm sorry, Courtney, I have to say <laughs> this. Peter, my theory on Aaron Rodgers is he doesn't want to go to a place where the deck is stacked for him to win a Super Bowl because if he fails then the narrative shifts ever so slightly from it was the Packers' fault they never got back to a Super Bowl to maybe it was Aaron's fault. If they fail, if he goes to San Francisco and he throws a big interception in a big spot, maybe it was Aaron's fault that they never went back to a Super Bowl. And I think he operates on an intellectual plane where he would be at least considering how that could play out. Now we break. When we return, how hard was it? For D'Amico Ryans to choose between the Broncos and the Texans. He'll tell you himself when this Friday edition of PFT Live continues right after this. D'Amico, you could have gone to other teams. Why the Texans? And did you give serious consideration to the other teams, especially Denver, since you interviewed there? And uh, uh, how close did you come to going to the Broncos? Thanks for the question, John. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the, the Denver Broncos, and we had great interviews there, great people there. But when it came down to it, there is no place I wanted to be any more than H-Town. So it was, an easy, it was an easy pick for me. It was a no-brainer to be here, all right, be home. It was a no-brainer. So it wasn't a, a difficult decision at all. It was very easy. It's business suit season in the National Football League. We've had two of the coat and tie press conferences. The only time you will ever see an NFL head coach looking like Tom Landry, the introductory press conference. Frank Reich earlier this week, D'Amico Ryan's yesterday. And Peter, that's a new approach. Okay, we see guys stand at the podium. We see guys sit behind a table. This configuration the Texans came up with, with a couple of nightstands, 
and he's sitting on a folding chair in the middle. I don't know if they're starting. They brought in some consultant on how best to present your head coach, but it's just I've I've never seen that one before. With uh, you can actually see that the coach has legs. <laughs> just that's uh, yeah. that's different. So we'll have th- we'll have three more of these business suit season press conferences coming up. Sean Payton eventually, we think. And the Cardinals and Colts, inevitably, we believe, will hire coaches. So we'll see how the next three go. But uh, two down, three to go, and they can put their suits back in the in the closet until uh, the next time they're hired to be a head coach of a team. You know, the one thing I thought of, I watched a bunch of clips about D'Amico Ryans, and it's very clear to see why the Texans wanted him. Three reasons. Number one, he loves that franchise. That franchise gave him a chance to basically burnish his reputation and earn his spot as an all uh, as a Pro Bowl player. That's number one. Number two, he is immensely self-assured, and I I notice this. You know, I don't know him well at all. I've only met him a couple of times, so I can't tell you anything really inside about D'Amico Ryan's. I just know this from his players. And the reason why I thought that of all the coaches in this cycle, except for Sean Payton, the one guy I would want is D'Amico Ryans. It was a very simple reason. The players who play under him, who play for him, don't feel that way. They feel like they're playing with him. And I think, you know, I talked to a couple of guys on the Niners, including Fred Warner, who essentially had, he had a great line, you know, to me. He goes, this guy did what I'm trying to do. You know, I mean, at the highest level of the sport. And he's one-on-one with me. And he has given me the faith that I can do this. And, And look, I'll also say this. Those guys loved Robert Sala. Loved him. And D'Amico Ryans was the perfect replacement for for Salah because he's one of them. And I think that's one of the things today. If you're looking for a coach, now look, he's got to figure out who's my offensive coordinator, who's my quarterback coach, who is going to teach a quarterback to take us to the promised land. That's important. He knows that's not his forte. So now that becomes the most important job in this organization. Who is going to take the quarterback, put the arm around the shoulders, give him tough love when he has to, and who's going to take that quarterback, whoever he is, you know, with the number two pick in this draft, whoever he is, who's going to take that quarterback and make him great? Yeah, and if that guy does a good enough job, he's going to be a head coach somewhere else, and then you have to find another offensive coordinator. That's yeah. one of the caveats that I mentioned from time to time when you hire a defensive coordinator to be your head coach. I want Sean Payton, Drew Brees, joined at the hip for 15 years, and I know no matter how successful we are, I don't have to worry about losing my quarterback whisper. That's going to be part of the challenge for the Texans. But, hey, being so good – that you lose your offensive coordinator to another team as a head coach would be the best possible problem the Texans could have because in recent years, they have been more dysfunctional as a football operation. The commanders have been overall more dysfunctional for non-football reasons, but the Texans have been the most dysfunctional football operation in the NFL, and this, for their sake, hopefully breaks the cycle. They had one and done with David Culley, one and done with Lovey Smith, D'Amico Ryans will not be one and done. The question is, how quickly can he turn this team around? I think we all believe that he will. And it came down to the Broncos or the Texans. Peter, I don't know what your assessment is of the Broncos' search as we pivot to the eventual hire of Sean Payton. It's not official yet. They're still working through some of the details. First, they had to do the deal with the Saints. Then they have to do the deal with Payton. But I feel like it started with, we want Harbaugh or Payton. Jim, not John. We want Jim Harbaugh or Sean Payton. And then they moved past both of those guys because they knew it was going to take a lot to get Payton. And Harbaugh, who the hell knows what went on there. And I think they they fell in love with D'Amico Ryans. And there was a period 10, 11 days ago, they were ready to hire D'Amico Ryans, even though they would have had to wait until after the 49ers were done. But they were ready to settle on D'Amico Ryans. 
And then they found out Ryan's isn't interested. And that's when they pivoted back to Harbaugh, went to Ann Arbor. Very significant for Greg Penner, the CEO of the Broncos, former CEO of Walmart, to get on a plane and go to Michigan in January to talk to Jim Harbaugh. That shows you they wanted Jim Harbaugh. They wouldn't have done that if they didn't want Jim Harbaugh. Well, Harbaugh, that petered out again, and then it was back to Peyton. And my theory is, Peter, and who knows, maybe there'll be a book written about it someday, but I think that as of Tuesday, when it looked like the Broncos were flailing in an effort to find a coach, that nobody wanted that job except Jerry Rossberg, I feel like they hit the panic button and they said, let's get this done. Let's quit screwing around here. We're starting to look like nincompoops. Here's your SAT word of the day. And Peter, I'm sure we'll come up with something better. We still have time. But let's get this thing done. And lo and behold, by the end of the day, they had Sean Payton. Okay, so Mike, you know, I think a lot of history is recreated uh, after this. And I'm sure we're going to hear from Denver. Oh, this is our first choice. You know, I don't know if he was their first choice, uh, you know, especially after Harbaugh. Uh, the whole Harbaugh fascination fascinates me, quite honestly. Um, you know, by the end of his time, he, he does he ever last a long time? You know, he's lasted in Michigan, I guess. But I mean, does he ever does he ever really last a long time? And at the end of his tenure, are people saying, "Man, glad we can move on from him"? I mean, you know, Harbaugh is a handful. He's unlike his brother, at least in my opinion, from my, uh, you know, dealings with the teams around him. But forget that for a minute. I think my biggest issue with all of this is, you know, I think it just leads us to understand that during the process of all of these things, you know, look, we probably follow a lot of the same people on Twitter. Um, You know, a week ago, Weren't you seeing uh, 10 days ago, Sean Payton is not involved. Uh, Sean Payton has questions about the ownership. Uh, Sean Payton is not a legitimate candidate for this job. So everybody was dismissing him. And I remember, you know, a, a little more than a week ago, Payton saying to me, you know, and look, at the time it was off the record now, I'm not going to say the everything that was said in the conversation, but I'm just saying that Sean Payton liked that place. I I kept saying to myself, where is this stuff about how he didn't like ownership? Or or that he'd be so demanding that they wouldn't want him. To me, the biggest thing that he had is he could look them in the eye and say, I am the one who gives you the best chance and really the only legitimate chance to fix this investment in a quarterback that might be one of the worst in history unless you get somebody in here to come in and put out the fire. And the other thing that he has, Mike, and again, we'll see what happens. Sean Payton has the ability to come in and to tell Russell Wilson, you are going to be one of 53. There's not going to be an office in the building. There's not going to be any special this, special that, video this. No, no, no. You are going to come to the building every day just like everybody else, and you're just going to be like everybody else. And obviously, he got to the point with Drew Brees where on Saturday night before the game, Brees told him the plays he wanted to run And Peyton said, okay, we're going to run him. But Wilson has a long time to go before that happens. But the other thing that I've heard out of there is that Russell Wilson is very ready for someone like Sean Peyton to come in and to be used as a malleable kind of piece of clay in the hands of Sean Peyton. Remember two years ago when... We first knew Russell Wilson was unhappy in Seattle. His agent went on the record and said that Russell Wilson would accept a trade to four places, and one of the four was the Saints when Sean Payton was the head coach. So this has been a long time coming. 
It's happening. It's just a matter of time before it's official. And by the way, in Phoenix next week, we will have Sean Payton on set. He always makes the rounds, I think, for Zebra Technologies. So we'll get a chance to talk to him a little bit about his plans for Russell Wilson. But the bottom line is this. If Russell Wilson stinks this year, it's going to be because of Russell Wilson. We can say, well, maybe it was Nathaniel Hackett for 2022. If he stinks this year, it's not going to be because of the coaching. It's going to be because of the player. All right, let's take a break. In the aftermath of losing in the NFC Championship, the 49ers would like to see a rule change that would have been very beneficial to them if it had been in place on Sunday. We'll discuss that, plus one other rules issue when PFT Live continues right after this. San Francisco 49ers lost on Sunday to the Philadelphia Eagles in part because they had no healthy quarterbacks. They lost Brock Purdy on the opening drive. Josh Johnson suffered a concussion. It was either Christian McCaffrey in the Wildcat formation or Brock Purdy who couldn't throw the ball, taking the snaps and handing the ball off. So that experience sparked many to say, hey, what about the third quarterback rule where you could have a guy in uniform and he would be there for an emergency like the one that transpired? Whatever happened to that? Why don't we bring that back? Here's Shanahan from earlier in the week talking about whether or not he would welcome a return of the third quarterback rule. Definitely be in favor of it. We were scared to death when that rule ended, whatever many years ago that was. Um but you kind of forget about it since you just don't see anyone have to go through it. But then you get reminded of how quickly a football game's over once that happens. So I think that would be a very smart thing to have. Now, look, I've heard people in the past say, if you're down to your third quarterback, you're screwed anyway. It doesn't matter if you have a third quarterback. That's one of the reasons that teams only have two on the active roster. And, Peter, the rule used to be your 46th guy would be a quarterback who could enter the game in the fourth quarter. If he entered the game before that, the others couldn't return to play. They just decided, let's just go with 46 men, and you can decide who you want to use, whether it's a third quarterback, whether it's a second kicker, whether it's an extra offensive lineman, whatever. So Kyle Shanahan could have had three quarterbacks in uniform on Sunday if he wanted to, but most teams have opted to use that 46th spot on someone else. So fine, let's do a 47th guy. And this time, let's not say after 10 years or 15 years of a third quarterback is the 47th man. Ah, let's just go ahead and expand the roster to 47 and they can choose however many quarterbacks they want. Then we're right back in the same spot we are now. Here's the bottom line in this, that right now today in the NFL, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I've heard all these people say, well, just have... Uh, the uh, the third quarterback as one of your 45. Problem solved. Well, obviously. Here's the issue with that. And it's a very simple issue. Okay? If you've played your whole year with uh, two quarterbacks dressing, okay? If you played your whole year with two quarterbacks dressing and you've used the last position on the roster every week, like for instance... When Green Bay hired Rich Bisaccia, you know, Brian Gudikins was very public in saying, we are going to spend time this year bulking up special teams. We're not going to have the debacle on special teams that we had last year. Every week, they would, t- they would suit up four guys, and they were better. They weren't, you know, who predominantly were going to play special teams, including Keyshawn Nixon, who was great returning kicks at the end of the year. But... I only make that point because, okay, there's probably only a 1 in 20 chance that in an average game you're going to need, maybe a 1 in 30 chance that you're going to need that third quarterback. But do you want, and so you're not going to all the time just say, okay, in an emergency, we need the third quarterback, even though we might go two years without ever playing the third quarterback. Okay, Brock Purdy played 48 games in college and was really never hurt. He played his first eight games in the NFL, was never hurt. Well, he got hurt and then Josh Johnson got concussed. It was a freak thing. But in one of your three biggest games of the year, do you want it to be a joke? 
do you want it to turn into a full-scale debacle where there is no use in watching the game on television for the last hour because you know that the 49ers don't have anybody who can throw the ball even underhanded? It's just common sense. Get a 46th guy every week uh, who's going to be a uh, a third quarterback or just say, okay, we'll dress 47. And the only way that the 47th guy, the third quarterback plays is if you have injuries to, to the first two and they can't come back in the game. Yeah, it seems like it makes a ton of sense. We'll see if the NFL does that because it just made for a rough afternoon. But you know what? At the end of the day, 45 million still watched that game on average, which really is amazing. For as bad as it got, and it was obvious the 49ers had no chance, it still had a massive audience uh, on average from start to finish in the game. Another rules situation that got a lot of attention this past weekend, Peter, it's whether you call it expedited review, replay assist, sky judge, booth umpire, the NFL expanded the list of plays, the types of situations where the league office can talk directly to the referee and do an expedited replay, can fix things without a full-blown replay review that bogs the game down. And yesterday, the NFL officiating account on Twitter bragged about how many stoppages they avoided in the 2021 season. Apparently, they don't have the numbers yet for 2022. There's still one game left. But 2021, the first year of this expanded replay assist, 254 stoppages were prevented. 127 that would have been booth reviews, 127 that would have been coaches' challenges. And that's fine. That's great. But, Peter, here's the problem. And there were three instances from the weekend. Number one, the Devontae Smith non-catch. All those replay angles are immediately piped to 345 Park Avenue. They talk about the Hawkeye system all the time. They can see all these things. They have access to all of them. Why didn't somebody see the angle where the ball was out and on the ground? That's where replay assist needs to come in and fix it. So Kyle Shanahan doesn't have to see the right replay angle. They're never putting the right replay angle on the board at Lincoln Financial Field. Are you kidding me? They're not going to give the visiting team head coach everything he needs to see in order to throw the red flag. Second, the Patrick Mahomes shin down before he got the ball out. They were ready to challenge that. Didn't have to. Replay assist stepped in with an expedited review. And then finally, the Marquez Valdez-Scantling when he stuck the ball out. Here's the Mahomes play. I'm, I'm going faster than the video will allow. But there's the play. His leg was down. Zach Taylor didn't have to throw the red challenge flag. Replay assist, spotted it, overturned it. That's what it's there for. And then the last play was the Marquez Valdez-Scantling where he reached on third down with the ball, past the sticks. It was clear and obvious because the challenge prevailed. Andy Reid had to throw his final red flag. He shouldn't have had to do it. Expedited replay. Should have seen it and overturned it. So my concern is if you're going to have this thing, it's got to be consistently applied. It can't just be some of the time. And that's the danger. When do you use it? When do you not use it? Because every successful challenge, Peter, if there's clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field should be overturned, then replay assist, expedited review, sky judge, etc., that should have that should have been activated. If it's that clear and obvious to overturn the ruling, it should have been activated without a formal replay review. So they've kind of opened a can of worms here, and I don't quite know how they go about getting the worms back in. Mike, you and I are going to disagree on this because we have in the past, but um, I think uh, the sky judge would simply duplicate what there is currently uh, on the books for every game that's played in the NFL. You just have to ask yourself, okay? The replay official upstairs has the ability to press a button and to talk into the referee's ear and say, Mahomes' leg was down. Uh, that is, uh, that's a sack right there. Or the, uh, the officiating command center in New York has the same ability. 
can press a button and say, hey, that Devontae uh, Smith catch is not a catch. Call that off, okay? Now, what's, what's going on right now in the league, I believe there are a lot of officials who basically think we have so many eyes watching us right now that if we make a mistake, it's going to be corrected by somebody else. And Mike, I believe that's what led to the absolute total debacle with 10 minutes and 30 seconds left in the Kansas City-Cincinnati game in which twice, twice, the officials did a do-over and on the second do-over of a play, Eli Apple got called for defensive holding, which was the right call, and allowed Kansas City to have another series of downs. And the reason that this... Look, we understand that sometimes mistakes are made. But do you know what happened because that mistake was made twice? I wrote, I'm writing about it in my column on Monday. You go down a rabbit hole, but it's a rabbit hole that every person who cares about officiating should read. I don't mean to brag. This is important. And it's important to see how little mistakes can cause big issues like this big issue. By screwing up the play the way that the Ronald Torbert crew did, okay, it cost one minute on the clock, four additional plays that never should have been played. Imagine if somebody gets a serious injury on one of those plays when, when all four of those plays should never have happened. And, and Zach Taylor burned a timeout during those four plays. So, I mean, it potentially was a colossal, you know, problem in this game. But to get back to our original thing, to me, there's already two people who would do what the Sky Judge does. It would be asked to do. And I don't understand why uh, you need a Sky Judge. Just have the replay official and the New York Officiating Command Center, in the immortal words of Belichick, do your job. Well, but that's the whole purpose of this modified sky judge they don't have full powers yet to fix everything there's a narrow band of situations where they can be involved uh for example you know people think the intentional grounding play was a sky judge issue it wasn't now maybe they went beyond the rules that key intentional grounding late in the game on joe burrow that's not one of the potential things that can be utilized when sky judge is or isn't available so the bottom line is whatever they do but it can be used in replay assist but but it has to be there, there are again replay assist is a limited band of plays and one of my concerns is there isn't enough explanation to fans there isn't enough explanation to media as the games are happening we don't quite understand we're not told whether or not expedited review is or isn't available for this my point is this if they're going to use it it can't be selective it's got to be consistent and i think in any case if it's sufficiently clear and obvious that a challenge flag thrown prevails, why isn't replay assist intervening when you have all the angles available to 345 Park Avenue? One last thing, and they're telling me to break. Remember on the, that, that, that clock error with the mulligans and that debacle that made people think the NFL is rigged? The original problem was Ron Torbert said, on my signal, start the play clock and the game clock, when he shouldn't have said start the game clock. There'd been an incomplete of course, pass. Of course. That was the first domino. But that wasn't and, the original problem. Why, that wasn't that wasn't the original well, the problem. The original problem right. was the, he spotted the ball a, a half yard behind. Right. If you look at the replay, you see the Kansas City sidelines pointing, pointing, hey, hey, you guys spotted the ball wrong. And that's when the side judge ran in and said, hold on a minute, we got to respot this ball. And then the Ronald Torbert thing happened. But it was all goes back to, you know what, Mike? You know what officiating is? It's a lot of small things, okay? And this got screwed up because Ronald Torbert misspotted the ball. How do you misspot a ball? But he misspotted the ball by half a yard. And then that led to, as you'll read in my column, that led to, uh, that was the first of five mistakes that happened in about three minutes of real time.
and almost all of those mistakes could have been fixed by replay assist, sky judge, etc. That mechanism is in place. So my point is this. If you're going to have it, you got to use it consistently. you got to use it properly. Let's take a break. More PFT Live coming at you right after this. A petition has begun to have Donna Kelsey, the mother of Jason and Travis Kelsey, flip the coin at Super Bowl 57. I'd be on board with it. None of it's going to matter. The NFL is going to do what the NFL is going to do, but it would be a great idea. And it looks like she's already got her combo shirt ready to go. Part Travis, part Jason, the two brothers. If you haven't heard, you may not have heard squaring off in Super Bowl 57. All right, let's do a little Super Bowl 57 show me something because we won't be able to do it next week, Peter. So let's go ahead and do it now. You're up. Mike, there are those who would say, by the way, that Donna Kelsey has as much of a chance to flip the coin before the Super Bowl as Donna Changstein would. So uh, we (laughs) shall see. Um, Okay, for my show me something, I would like Jalen Hurts to show me something. And look, he's shown us a ton in, you know, his breakout season as MVP candidate. In this particular game, what I think is going to be very interesting is that you see at this point that the defensive front of Kansas City, now that George Karloftis has given them another toy for Steve Spagnuolo to play with and Chris Jones and Frank Clark, In this game, show me those legs, Jalen Hurts, because I believe that your legs in this game are going to be as important as your arms. So show me something, Jalen Hurts. Rush for 96 yards for the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 57. One thing I love about this draft is it does apply in various ways. It can be, you better show me something or else, or give me my popcorn. I'm going to sit back. Please show me something. And I use that version of it for Patrick Mahomes because he's the most entertaining player in the NFL right now. We saw him gut through the high ankle sprain last week, determination, will. And look, with Tom Brady out now, we know that the bar is seven. And Patrick Mahomes has already had his shot at two. And he lost one to Brady. Brady had six. Mahomes had one. Brady got seven. Now, these these moments are few and far between. If you want to start stockpiling rings, this is your chance. You need number two now if you want to have any chance of getting to seven. And Patrick Mahomes has as good a chance, if not better chance, than anyone in the NFL right now to be the one to match Tom Brady. So show me something, Patrick Mahomes, and get to number two show me something frank clark so at the end of the at the end of the game frank clark got really salty with james palmer at the end of the afc championship game on the field very unhappy with the uh you know with the with the mouthiness of the bengals and the mayor of cincinnati all that stuff and so right now you look at kansas city and you say man This Frank Clark, he is a feisty rapscallion. But Frank Clark in this particular game, I think, is a huge factor. Because I think that what the Philadelphia Eagles are going to do is they're going to say, we cannot let Chris Jones wreck this game. Can't let Frank uh, Clark wreck this game either, but we are going to concentrate on making sure that this game is not ruined by uh, Chris Jones. So I want to see Frank Clark come in and make four or five plays because he's going to have that opportunity in Super Bowl 57. The time constraints require us to cut this draft in half. You'll get my second round pick and round three on an expedited basis when PFT Live concludes right after this. All right, Warp Speed here through the remainder of the Show Me Something Super Bowl 57 edition draft. I'm going to go Nick Sirianni. I don't know if you've seen this, Peter, but Julian Love, the Giants' safety, has been talking a lot the past day or so. He was on NFL Network. He's been on Twitter basically saying anyone could coach the Eagles. They've got a collection of great players. Sirianni isn't the answer, so... 
come on, drop some plays, Nick Sirianni. Give us a new version of the Philly special. Do something to shut up Julian Love and prove that you're one of the reasons why this team is where it is. So show me something, Nick Sirianni. Show me something, Isaiah Pacheco. Mike, I love Isaiah Pacheco. Seventh-round draft choice runs angry. And in this particular game, you've got a fresh defensive line throughout the game for the Philadelphia Eagles. Run angry, Isaiah Pacheco. Show me something in your first Super Bowl. You took my last one. I didn't think you would because every time he has the ball, he is different than everyone else on the field. He has an explosion. He has an anger. He has a determination. So I'll stay in the backfield since I wasn't ready for a fallback. And I'll say, show me something, Jarek McKinnon. I love his story. He was a great backup in Minnesota. He went to San Francisco, had two seasons lost to a knee injury. He is special. And if he's the guy who's open on a given play, Patrick Mahomes is going to get it to him. And even if he has to throw that little flop pass like he did when they were playing the Broncos and McKinnon caught it and took off for the end zone. So weapons galore for Patrick Mahomes, not just at the receiver position, but in the backfield. That's it for us. Next time we see you, we'll be in Phoenix. Everybody have a great weekend. See you Monday.